But this weekend, I want to speak to you about the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan isn't that a way too familiar parable for us. And I think the parable of the Good Samaritan is probably the most well-known parable of the New Testament. In fact, of the entire Bible, it is so well-known, not just within Christian circles, but in the world, that there are actually a phrase uh, that is coined called a Good Samaritan, which now forms common usage. And it is used to describe the extension of help and kindness to strangers. That's how well-known this parable has become. And it is universally uh, uh, accepted to describe a code of ethics in which one should extend help uh, to others regardless of the differences in our background. Now, there's a problem with that understanding of the parable of the Good uh, Samaritan because this parable was never told by Jesus to instruct us on ethics. Even though the parable in itself makes for a great lesson plan in uh, regards to, you know, pertaining to ethics. You see, when Jesus gave this parable, it was in response to a theological question that an expert of the Old Testament law had asked him. The parable bears much more than just ethical instruction, but instead it is meant to be deeply theological. Now, if this surprises you, then it just reinforces the fact that we need to relook and to re-examine this parable with fresh eyes. Amen? We need to examine it more closely because I reckon that most of the time when we are doing our Bible readings and we come across the parable of the Good Samaritan, we tend to read it through very quickly and gloss over it and we don't ever uh, really read it word by word, line by line, because we've become way too familiar with this parable. Now, in order for us to look into this parable with uh, new eyes, first I need to help us frame this parable properly in the context in which it was given. So the first thing I want to examine for us is the context in which this parable was given. In Luke chapter 10, verse 25, we, are, uh, we read this, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You see, the context in which the parable of the Good Samaritan was told is that a lawyer, an expert of the Torah, of the Old Testament law, came to Jesus in order to test him. Let me remind us of a different time, a different place, a different person who asked Jesus the same question. In Matthew chapter 19 and Mark chapter 8, we're told of a rich young ruler who came to Jesus with exactly the same question. Go through the Bible again and you will see verbatim the question is the same. And they both asked this, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? With the rich young ruler, Jesus gave him a really straightforward answer, though a difficult answer. The answer was simply this, follow Jesus, whatever the cost might be. Even if it were to cost you everything, follow Jesus and this is the way to eternal life. However, in this case, with this lawyer who asked this question, it was, you know, it, um, Jesus didn't answer it directly. Instead, he answered his questions with more answers and then he told this parable of the Good Samaritan. This is clearly an indication that Jesus perceived the motivation of this lawyer, that it was not as much about seeking truth as it was about trying to trap Jesus in his answers. Amen. Nonetheless, you can be certain that Jesus is going to thoroughly deal with this question raised by the lawyer. He was not going to avoid it that by the end of this exchange, we should have Jesus. We should realize that Jesus would give a clear answer to the question that is at hand and it's a question of eternal life. 
Amen. Therefore, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan needs to be understood in the light of this question and uh, about how to inherit eternal life. The next thing that we want to consider is the structure in which Jesus answered this man. Why do we need to look at the structure? We need to look at the structure because the structure helps us to emphasize what really is important. The fact that Jesus deliberately used a certain structure to answer this man. In fact, he used a very prophetic structure in his reply. It is to help us to understand where the answer is being uh, uh, portrayed to the lawyer. At which point of the parable is the answer being delivered to the lawyer? And therefore, it's important for us to look at the structure. So bear with me for a moment. Firstly, in the exchange between the lawyer and Jesus, there is a structure that we observe. I want to show you this diagrammatically so that it is easier for you to conceptualize what is happening. The lawyer comes first with a question, what shall I do to inherit life? Jesus returns with another question, what is written in the law? What is your take on this? The lawyer answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, with all your mind and strength. And Jesus says, you answered rightly. Then he gives him something to do. He says, go and do this. Practice what you have just answered. And then the lawyer comes back with the second question, but who is my, my neighbor? And then Jesus goes, he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan and he ends off with another question. Which of these became a neighbor? The lawyer answered, the one who showed mercy, and Jesus again answers with, uh, you know, the following words, go and do likewise. Can you see the pattern? Question, question, answer, answer, followed by go and do this. Question, question, answer, answer, followed by go and do this, right? And the pattern of this exchange can clearly be seen and each round of questions coming back with an answer of going to do. In, in essence, what is happening is that Jesus is nailing the lawyer down into a corner and pressing him to see that there is no real solution to the answer that he's asking, at least not the way the lawyer perceives it to be, okay? Now that brings us to the second structure, which is the structure of the parable of the Good Samaritan in itself. Now, the structure of this parable is very uh, um, deliberately constructed with a prophetic construction, okay? A prophetic structure. I mentioned this before in other messages that whenever you see a structure like that, it's because God is trying to point us to the answer and the focus and the importance and the significance of a particular thing. Not only is he pointing us to the significance, he's showing us there is a, there's a prophetic revelation to be obtained from this. Now, the parable comes in what we call a chiastic uh, pattern in which there is a climax, okay? So it follows a pattern of A, B, C, D, C, B, A. Again, let me put this diagrammat diagrammatically for you so that it's easy for you to perceive what is going on here. Now, and at the same time, let me recount to you the parable. It begins with a man who falls to the robbers and he is robbed of everything and stripped naked. I mean, there is nothing left in this man. This guy was taken uh, of everything that he owned. And then a priest walks by, he sees this man, but he continues on and he doesn't stop for this man. Then a Levite walks by and also he passes this man. And then here comes the climax where a Samaritan comes, he stops and he shows mercy. Not only does he show mercy, he binds the wound of this man, which is where the Levite failed to do. And he transports the man to Jericho, which is what the priest fails to do. And the parallel is this, a priest is someone of, um, uh, a person of great prominence and substance, okay? It is known in those days that the priest will never traverse on a journey on foot, 
because he's rich enough not to walk on foot, okay? A priest would always have a donkey or some form of a transport in which he would be riding on that transport. And likewise, this Samaritan apparently is a man of some substance, so he has some transport and he offers to transport the injured man to Jericho, which the priest should have done, but the priest did not do. Finally, this man, uh, you know, the Samaritan man brings the fallen person to Jericho and then he pays for the bill. Not only that, he promises to, uh, you know, pay for anything, everything else that this man might need. In other words, where the robbers have stolen everything, the Samaritan comes and he restores everything. Can you see the parallel of what is being put to us? You see, the climax where the Samaritan appears is the point of greatest significance. This is where the revelation lies. This is where the answer to Jesus' question comes to. Now, at the same time, you know, when we see these structures being worked in the Scriptures, it's meant to cause us to understand there is something prophetic, there's something deeper going on beneath the surface of this parable. And the parable is more than just a parable about good works. The good parable of the Good Samaritan has got nothing to do with ethics. It's got nothing to do with extending kindness to the strangers, even though you can use it for that purpose. But instead, there is a deeper prophetic point here. And this is where I want to lead us to by the end of this message. Now, as you look into this whole account, there are a couple of important points that we need to establish in this exchange between Jesus and the lawyer. The first thing is this. There is a problem in the question, okay? The, 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 the lawyer comes, he asks this question, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In fact, not just him, but many other people, or Jewish people, asking this question. Now, inherently in this question is a problem. I don't know if you noticed this, right? Do you notice the problem in this question? Because if you're talking about inheritance, then there is nothing to do about it. You're either born into that family whereby the inheritance comes to you or you're not born into that family. Inheritance is not something you can earn. Inheritance is not something that you can do about. You are just born. You can't decide where you're going to be born. Amen. And we come into inheritance by virtue of the fact that we are born into the family in which the inheritance is given. Amen. And yet it appears that somehow the Jewish people kept asking the question and kept framing it in this way. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And why is this so? Because the reason is salvation and eternal life for the Jewish people is premeditated on two things. Number one, you had to be Jewish. As far as the Jewish people were concerned, salvation is not available to the non-Jews. It is only available to those who are in covenant through the covenant of Abraham that's come down to them. And yet at the same time, the Old Testament laws, the laws of the Torah were given and there was a requirement to obey the laws of the Torah. So here comes these two factors. Number one, I'm, I'm in the lineage of Abraham, so I, should, I, I, I have inheritance of eternal life. But at the same time, I must obey the Torah, the entirety of the Torah, in order to obtain this salvation. And therefore, the Jewish people had this double mindset. On the one hand, they had to qualify for the inheritance by keeping the whole of the laws of the Old Testament. Over 600 laws, they had to keep it. And therefore, the question comes to them, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that's why they asked this question. You know, but the conundrum that the Jewish people found themselves in was that they were unable to keep the entirety of the law. 
You see, this question of inheriting, what must I do to inherit, was a question that surfaced in, in Jewish life and amongst the rabbis, there was a constant discussion about this thing. And in fact, they talked about it all the time because there was, a, there was this, they, they were in this fix. They were born into the commonwealth of salvation, but yet at the same time, they had to keep the entire law and they've discovered that they can't keep the law. And Jesus brought this out acutely by asking the lawyer for his take on this question. What do you think? And so the lawyer answers the Lord. He says in Luke chapter 10, verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, let me say this in all likelihood. The lawyer had heard Jesus talk about this and given an answer concerning the summary of the Old Testament law and he was merely reciting it back to Jesus in order to see how Jesus was respond. He wasn't going to answer Jesus out of the sincerity of his heart, but he probably heard Jesus mention this in Matthew 22 or Mark 12 and he was just giving it back to the Lord. You see, the question of reducing the whole Old Testament into a condensed set of law is something that the Jewish rabbis were thinking all about. Because they had this question, what must I do? What, how do I keep the entirety of the law when they've discovered that they can't? In fact, there, was a, a, there is a common story told amongst the Jewish community about how a heathen, a non-believer came to the rabbis in Israel and they would, he would stand on one foot and he would ask them, teach me the whole law while I maintain this stance. And these uh, rabbis would laugh at him and, and ridicule him and say, how can you attempt to understand the whole law and learn the whole law within such a short period of time? But he came to this man called Rabbi Hillel and Hillel lived shortly before the days of Jesus. And this is what Hillel answered this man. He said, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbour. That is the whole Torah while the rest is commentary thereof, thereof, go and learn it. So this was a common thing. The rabbis of those days were trying to summarize the whole law so that it became more manageable for the people to obey. Of course, what Hillel had quoted here is easily recognized as the negative form of the golden rule, which Jesus gave. Jesus gave the positive side of this, do unto others what you want others do to you. Amen? Now, Jesus responded to the answer with approval but he, he does conclude with an important punchline. He says, you've answered well, now go and, and do this. Do this and you will live. Now, this is the one, it is one thing to have a nice-sounding axiom, you know? Oh, you know, love the Lord with all your heart, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. But let me tell you this, when you have to live it out, it's altogether different. The answer that Jesus gave to this lawyer in the first structure, where he always lands back to this thing, go and do it. The answer brings the lawyer always back to a dead end. Because when the lawyer comes to a place and he has to do it to obtain eternal life, he discovers what? He can't do it. It's impossible. There is no way any human person can keep the, the 600 over laws of the Old Testament constantly, all the time. Even the great lawgiver Moses himself could not keep the laws that he gave. Amen? And so it brings the man back to a dead end. And the lawyer knew this. He knew that there was no answer to what his question was. But then he goes on and he talks about, he thinks about the second part, about loving the neighbor. Now he thinks, as far as the rabbis were thinking in those days, this part about loving the neighbor, that's not too difficult. We can do that. And you know why they thought it was doable? Because as far as the Jewish uh, uh, law-keeping people were doing is that a neighbor is well-defined. Who is a neighbor? 
neighbor firstly must be Jewish. It cannot be a Gentile. And it's not just any Jewish person. It must be a fully law-abiding, law-keeping Jewish person. In other words, my neighbor is someone who's exactly just like me. And when someone is just like me, it's not too difficult to love my neighbor and to look after this thing. And that, of course, brings us to the parable of the Good Samaritan because Jesus is now going to deal with the second part of what it means to love your neighbor. So here is this thing. The parable contains a prophetic revelation. The lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? This is in Luke 10, 29. Jesus, at the end of the parables, he, said, he asked this question. So which of these three do you think became neighbor to him who fell amongst the thieves? Now, there is a change in the posture of the questions from the way the lawyer asks and to the way Jesus reframed the question. You see, when the, the lawyer asks, you know, who is my neighbor? He's, be, he's simply saying this, just tell me who I'm responsible for. You know, I, you know, I don't know about you, if you have kids, you know, and, or you have people who might work for you, who might not be the most conscientious. The question is always this, just tell me what I must do, and I'll do exactly what I need to do. Just bare minimal, nothing more, nothing excess, uh, just tell me what I need to do. But Jesus comes and he turns the question around. He says, who must you become a neighbor to? When you put the question this way, then the whole world is your responsibility. Every person you're responsible for, as long as there is somebody who is in need. And what's more, the protagonist of the parable is a Samaritan. Let me remind us again and establish this, that there is a deep hatred between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. This is not some cross-border rivalry between Singaporeans and Malaysians, whereby we are arguing who has got the best chakritiao or who has got the, you know, or is it a roti prata or roti chennai? You know, this is nothing like that. But instead, you need to understand this is a deep-seated hatred created by religious difference between, by years and decades of war, by discrimination, by a contest for land and a contest for rights. And so this parable, again, um, I want to suggest this to us, that this parable was probably based on a true set of events. In other words, it was something that happened for real and people knew about it. In fact, there are some archaeological uh, finds and there are some uh, uh, ancient writings that reference to this and indicates that this is actually something that did happen. You see, if it wasn't, it was just a made-up story, then the lawyer could easily dismiss it and says, Jesus, you are imagining this. No Samaritan will extend kindness. There's no good Samaritan that will do something like that, right? Yet the lawyer accepted this parable on face value, belies the fact that this parable is indeed rooted in reality, and everybody accepted that this happened. You see, what the parable did was the parable cut off any hopes that the lawyer had that he could work his way into inheriting eternal life. Because on the one hand, to love God means to obey His commandments and he knew that he could not keep the entirety of the law of the Old Testament. And now, on the second hand, he's been told that everybody is potentially his neighbour, including the most hated of, his, of, you know, of, of all the Samaritans. In no uncertain terms, Jesus indicated that to obtain eternal life, he had to go and do likewise. He had to keep the entire law and he had to love everybody, including the Samaritans. And that essentially ends the discussion. There is no way anyone can obtain eternal life. This is what the parable acts. 
to do. This is what Jesus was bringing this lawyer to. He's bringing us to a point of a dead end where there is no way you can work it out to inherit eternal life. And therefore, we now need to look at where this parable, where this parable acts as a prophetic answer to the question that has been raised by the lawyer. So let me paint in picture for you what is happening in this parable. A man journeys from Jerusalem, you know, which is a higher place, to Jericho, and along the journey, he fell amongst thieves. They robbed him, they stripped him naked. This is important for you to realize because so much of who we are is identified by our clothing, by how we conduct ourselves, how we are, uh, you know, uh, arrayed. And yet in the process, they wounded him, they left him half dead. Now, this is not just a description of a random person. Let me tell you this, prophetically, this is a description of you and I. We are the ones who have been robbed. We are the ones who have suffered in the hands of the devil who comes to steal, kill, destroy. We have all experienced loss in our lives. Some of us have experienced devastation by sickness. We have been ravaged by the affairs and the cares and the troubles of this life. And I'm telling you this, we you and I need to learn to identify with this man who has been robbed. The Beatitudes begin with this, blessed are the poor in spirit. And the word poor here literally means to, de de to be deprived to such an extent whereby you are maimed and you are handicapped and there is nothing else you can do, no work you are able to do except to squat and to kneel in the street side and to beg for mercy from people that passes you by. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, this is the state that we need to realize that we've all experienced spiritually in relationship to eternal life. We were completely helpless. Satan, were, we were at the mercy of Satan, had no future. There was only condemnation waiting for us. Amen. And that's the description, that's the prophetic description of this man. But along comes a priest and he sees this man who has fallen you know, to robbers but because of his state, because he was naked, there was no way for the priest to determine whether this person is even a Jew, much less his social status. Is this man a law-abiding, you know, a Jewish person who had the trappings, you know, or the dress code of one who keeps the law? Or is he a secular Jewish person who doesn't keep? Maybe he's a tax collector. There is nothing on this man to tell the priest who he really is and realize this he can't even tell if this man was really alive or not. Now, the priest then has a special problem, a very, very um, troublesome problem. You see, if the injured man was not a Jew, then it wouldn't be his problem because as far as the priest is concerned, the law only required him to extend help to one who is a Jewish person. Amen? If he, if, even if he was a Jew, then the question was this, is, is the person a law-abiding Jew? Because if he wasn't, then the priest is also not obligated to help this man. So without any outward sign of his identity, how could the priest know what is his duty according to the law? If the man was dead, that would be worse. And the priest had approached him to help him and discovered that this man was dead, then the priest would be ceremonially uh, uh, defiled. And you know what he had, would have to do? He would then have to turn around go climb all the way back up to Jerusalem and then undergo a week-long process of ceremonial purification during that period of time. 
you know, he will not be able to eat from the tithe nor even collect them. There will be no income for his family. The same ban will apply to his family, to his servants. Distribution to the poor will be impossible. All his ministry, all his work comes to a standstill during this period where he has to be ceremonially cleaned again. And all this time, he wasn't even certain if he should help this man. Can you now imagine the conundrum that this priest was going through in his mind? In the end, he decided, why risk it? Why bother to do all this and go through all this trouble? Just walk on. The prophetic thing for us to understand is this religion will never help this man. And religion cannot grant us salvation and it cannot help us either. Religion itself creates its own logical problems that cannot be solved. Amen. And then comes the Levite. Who is the Levite? The Levite is the one who is the assistant to the priest. The priest had finished his ministry. He's going back to Jericho. And the Levite who's been, you know, um, his assistant now follows behind the priest. And he looks at his boss. Hey, my boss didn't stop. He's the priest. I'm only a Levite. Right? If the boss doesn't think it's right to help him, who am I to consider that I should help him? If he, the, the boss thinks that it's not required under the law for him to help, then who am I to think that I know better than my boss? So what does he do? He walks on by and ignores the man again. And then finally comes the Samaritan. Again, this is the climax as we've shown earlier in the structure of the parable. But the question is, what makes this the climax? The mere appearance of a Samaritan who shows compassion? Is it just about good works? Is it just about kindness? The nature of the structure leads us to place so much of a greater emphasis on this particular moment. You see, the Samaritan here represents the solution to the question that was raised in the first place. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? The answer comes with the appearance of the Samaritan man who shows kindness. The answer isn't about what one should do for eternal life. The answer is a person. It's this Samaritan man. Who is this Samaritan man? The only conclusion is that the prophetic angle and the prophetic arrowing of this parable is that this Samaritan man is a representation of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this parable about is about. This is not a parable about kindness. This is not a parable about random works of, you know, generosity. You see, Jesus is the Samaritan. He comes to the fallen man. We are the fallen man. And he does what religion is not able to do. He does what social status and what social protocol stops others from doing. He binds our wounds and he anoints it with oil. In other words, He fills us with His Holy Spirit and He restores our joy. Then He transports us to a place of safety and healing. He restores us and heals us and He pays in advance for all of our needs. What was stolen from us, He now restores back to us. And not only that, He promises when He returns, He'll pay for anything, anything else that we might have need of. Amen. Now, here's an additional note for us to consider. You see, the fallen man who's been taken to the inn, if he woke up and he got well and he didn't have money to pay for all the medical expenses and his stay in the inn, it was the right of the innkeeper to sell this man off as a slave. But because of the promissory note from the Samaritan man who says, you know, I will come back and pay for everything, this man doesn't ever need to face slavery again. And that's what Jesus does. 
You see, the, the parable is not just encouraging us to be kind to people that have fallen into ill, and I'm sure we need to do that. But this parable is prophetic in that it's telling us what Jesus has done for us. He's paid for our debts, and He's paid for all our debts ahead of us. This parable is meant to answer that question that have befuddled the minds of the Jewish people. What can I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? I've come into the lineage of Abraham, but there's all these laws that I'm not able to keep. Who can save my soul? Where is salvation to be found? And Jesus gives this parable to us to give us the answer that it is not in what we do. It is in the person that we believe. He is the Samaritan. He stopped for us. He saw us in our place of need. He took the initiative to come to us and He binds our wounds. He saves us. He anoints us and He pays for all of our debts and restores to us everything that has been lost. Amen. You see, this is the emphasis. This is what this parable really is about. Can I tell us one more time? The whole world has misunderstood this parable. So much so that they've defined this parable, a good Samaritan, as someone who does a great deed. But this good Samaritan is not someone who merely does a great deed. This good Samaritan is our Lord Jesus Christ, who does the only thing that we cannot do who does for us what nobody else can do for us, what we cannot do for ourselves. You see, when I saw this, my heart was so stirred with a sense of deep love for my Saviour. But it is also causing me to realise what Jesus has done for me. Amen. And I wonder if there are people who are here tonight or this morning in this service or we're watching this online and we are in a place where there are things that are going wrong in our lives. There is pain, there is sickness, there is loss. The devil has come and is ravaging our lives to steal, to kill, and is in the midst of destroying. They've taken our children, caused them to go wayward. They've come, the locusts have come and have eaten of the things that God has allotted unto us. Now I want to tell you this, that you don't have to stay in that place anymore. And it's not about what more you can do, how much more you can strive. It's about what He has done for us. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet, shall we? And I want to bring this to a close. I want to just also apologize for my voice. It's four weeks into this sore throat and I am struggling with my voice still. So bear with me. But I want to ask us to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. I feel my heart going out so much to all of us because I know the troubles of life confronts many of us. I know that there are things where we have been trying and we've been trying and we've been seeking to do our best and sometimes even though we've been Christian for years, we fall back to this mindset whereby we think to ourselves, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Maybe in your heart, your question is not about salvation, but in your heart, you're thinking, what else must I do to earn God's favour? What else must I do to come to a place of fulfilment? What else must I do to obtain healing in my life? What else must I do to see a breakthrough in this area? You know, when something goes wrong, many times the first thing we ask ourselves or we point at is, what did I do wrong? Have I sinned? Have I done this? And I'm not saying that we shouldn't think like we, that should not be in our consideration and maybe, you know, it's impossible for us never to not consider that. But I want to tell you that we are all that fallen men by the side of the road. And if you are down, if you are bashed, if your life is ravaged, well, you know what? 
All of us have gone through that. All of us are going through that as well. We are that man fallen by the side of the road. But I want to give you hope this morning to tell you that you don't have to stay down because the good Samaritan, our Lord Jesus Christ, has stopped for us. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ is not walking by like the priest. He's not walking past us like the Levite. But He has seen us and He has compassion on us. You see, the word compassion in the Bible, in its original Hebrew, is so complex that they couldn't find a single word to describe what it means. And so they use a range of words. They created the word compassion. They used the word loving kindness. But it's this intense love that God has for us where He would stop for us <coughs> and He would extend His hand to us. Amen. I want to ask us to bow our heads, to close our eyes. If you are standing in this place today and <coughs> you are in a place of need, maybe there is sickness in your body, maybe your children have wandered away from God, maybe their business is going through a difficult time, maybe in your own life you're struggling with things, maybe financially you've gone through loss, you know, and you are in a place of need. I want to I wanna just ask you today, we're going to stand here together and we're going to reach out to the Good Samaritan, our Saviour. Amen. And I want to assure you this, that He's compassionate towards us. His loving kindness never fails then His love is for us, whereby He says to us that if we would call to Him, He will answer us. If we would invite Him in, He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. I feel so much that God wants to take the initiative in our lives so that we would understand afresh it's not about what we can do, but it's about what He is willing to do for us. Amen. And all over this place, every head bowed and every eye closed. If that's you and you have a need, I want to ask you to stand with me as we lift up our hands to the Lord. If you would just extend your hands to the Lord right now and bring before the Lord those needs that you have. And I want to tell you this, this is not a parable about good works. I'm not asking you for more good works. I'm just simply telling you the, this good Samaritan is walking by. And if you would just extend your hands to him and say, Lord, I am in need. Would you help me? Would you help me with my children? Would you help me with my finances? Would you help me with my future? Would you help me with this problem that I'm facing? Lord, would you help me in this situation? Will you help me in this sickness, in this trial that I'm going through? Whatever it might be, to stop and to say, Good Samaritan, my Lord Jesus, would you help me? And I just believe that God's going to extend His hand to us. You know, in my heart, there is such a confidence that Jesus says that He is willing. He is willing. He's willing to heal you. He's willing to bring back the prodigals. He's willing to extend His help. He's willing not just to help, but He promises to pay for all your debts and to pay for everything that you might need because He's provided for it. I'm going to ask uh, Pastor Caleb to lead us in one song and we're going to worship the Lord together. And as we worship the Lord, extend your hearts to the Lord. You know, I really believe that God wants to answer people this morning. God wants to answer you. You know, and I feel sometimes that, you know, we want to, you know, I would love to have people come to the altar and pray for you. But to, this today in this service, I really feel like God just wants to extend His hands to you where you are so that you know that you have access to Him yourself personally. 
And as we worship the Lord, I want to ask you to call to the Lord because He is the Good Samaritan. Amen. listen to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.